Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be talking about Alma 17 through 22. This is the story of the sons of Mosiah. They're going out doing missionary work. And chapter 17 is Ammon's approach to the missionary work. Probably one of the most famous stories. I remember as a kid learning about this and just being just enthralled with this idea of they're they're cutting off arms. Like, what's going on here? And so the 17th chapter is where he approaches, Ammon does. He goes up, always talks about going up. He goes up to the land of Nephi, and he's coming to where the Lamanites are, and he comes to the king and essentially says, I want to be your servant. Now, he doesn't just get to go walk up to the king. He's captured, tied up, and taken to the king. And as he gets there, uh, I've always found it interesting, Bryce, that the king, when he finds out that Ammon says, I want to be your servant, what does the king offer him? His daughter. <laughs> so interesting. But, you know, there's a lot to that. I wonder if he's saying, wait a minute, you're the son of the king of the Nephites, yeah. and I'm the son of the king of all the land, and may, I don't know, maybe he had some ulterior motives. We can make like a political tie. You know, we know that that happens in Europe all the time. Kings yeah. marry their daughters off to the princes of other nations. It doesn't say that in the text, but I think that's a good subtext, something that's there. But he doesn't take him on the daughter. He says, no, I'm not going to marry your daughter. But essentially, he offers him this. And so Ammon retains his outsider status. He says, no, I'm going to be an outsider. I'm not going to be married into the family. And then he gets the job to go be the servant, to go take care of, what, it, what, what does it call them? The flocks of the king. It never does identify what the flocks are. Yeah, I think we have on our image the Freeberg picture, right, of Ammon with his shirt off, and he's super muscular because he's been doing P90X, and the, the sheep are all there. But could they be flocks of turkeys or goats or something else? Probably. So this week is an absolute wonderful commentary on how the Lord's work moves forward, how to do missionary work. And the Lord seems to be saying, no, here's how I want it done. Here's how the Lord's work moves forward. And I think we can focus on missionary work, but we can also focus on primary teachers and young women's leaders and young men's leaders. And no matter what you're calling in the church, here's how the work moves forward. If you can learn the difference between the Ammon approach and the Aaron approach, we'll be successful at moving the Lord's work forward. So let's start in chapter 17, verse 11, I think is the essence of This is the Lord's instruction that then gets illustrated by what Ammon does. So the Lord says, go forth among whatever calling you have. Go forth among the primary, go forth among the young women's. Or if it's missionary work, go forth in Canada, go forth in Oklahoma City, go forth among, you know, Ethiopia. Wherever you've been called, go forth, establish my word, be patient in long-suffering, that you may show forth good examples unto them in me. Right up front, the Lord just simply says, look, folks, this is how the work of the Lord moves forward. It's not going to be easy either, is it? It's going to take some patience. Please know that up front. It's going to take some patience and some affliction and long-suffering. But what you need to focus on is it's going to take your example. So let's watch how the Lord's work goes forward with Ammon's good example. 
So he goes into Ishmael, he meets the king, and he says, look, verse 22, this is quite often, if, if I could just simply say, here is the attitude of your primary class towards you when you first get the calling. Here is the attitude of the young women's group or the young men's group when you first get the calling. You're a brand new young women's leader. Or here's kind of the approach of the Sunday school class when you've been called. And it's certainly the approach of non-members when you, a member of the church, starts to get close to their life. The questions arise. What do you want? What is this person's motive? So Lamoni says what he de- he desired to know what is your desire. The king inquired of Ammon if it were his desire to dwell in the land among the Lamanites. Now, here's step number one in winning their hearts and doing the Lord's work. Ammon responds, I desire to dwell among this people for a time, yea, even perhaps until the day I die. In other words, I want you in my life. Whether you join my church or not, whether you believe my words or not, I want you in my life. And I think that's a commentary for the primary teacher, the young women's leader, the young men's leader. I've been called to the deacon's quorum. I want these deacons in my life. And it's not a calling to me. It's a relationship. It's a personal. I want you, the person. Whether you believe my words or not, and I think that's what won at Lamoni's heart initially, is I think he could see in his face and feel in his desire, this man really does want to be in my life. And all of a sudden, the young woman's heart starts to change when their new advisor really does send that message. You're not an assignment to me. You're not something I'm all of a sudden have to love because you're my calling, I want you in my life, perhaps even until the day I die. And then Ammon or Lamoni says, well, take my wife. And again, maybe that was he was very, very, very pleased and genuinely wanted his daughter to marry him. Maybe it was a trick. Maybe he had ulterior motives. I don't know. But Ammon's reaction was, no, I'm not going to marry your daughter. I will be thy servant. I want to serve you. I am in this calling to have you in my life so that I can serve you. And boy, if anything, we wave our arms to say, this is how the Lord's work moves forward. It is servant leadership. I love that in the Doctrine and Covenants, the stake president is referred to not as the stake president, but as the stake servant. You kind of see this in the narrative in John, don't you, when Jesus is teaching them about the, the greatest and he dresses himself up as a slave, essentially, and washes their feet. And we kind of miss some of this in our modern world because we have shoes and socks, at least in the West, right? But back then, totally different world. Your feet are touching all this gross stuff, stuff that I'm not going to really talk about in this podcast, and Jesus is washing that. That would be the least desirable assignment anyone had. It's what slaves did. And Jesus takes the assignment and says, you know what, I'm going to wash your feet. Yeah. And that's what being a young women's leader is. That's what being a primary teacher is. It's not so much I get to teach you and I'm going to theorize on all my opinions of the God. No, no, no. I have an opportunity to have you in my life and to serve you. So the king then assigns him to the flock. He's going to go take care of the flock. The flock gets scattered. Now, as soon as the flock gets scattered, Ammon gets excited because he saw an opportunity. 
here I think is one of the greatest lines in the Book of Mormon. It's certainly one of the greatest lines for missionaries. If you want to preach the gospel, if you want to be a successful missionary, I think the Lord is revealing the heart and soul of missionary work in verse 29. He sees an opportunity to win their hearts. He says, that I may win the hearts of these my fellow servants, that I may lead them to believe my words. And if I could just shout that out, when we win their hearts, they will believe our words. But they will not believe our words until we win their hearts. The, this example, Bryce, reminds me of natural disasters. So the waters of Sebas, we're going to talk about later, how I th- kind of think this is a setup. There's a lot to this story, and it's layered, it's nuanced. But at its core, it's exactly what you say. It's Ammon's opportunity to win the hearts of not only King Lamoni, but these guys. These guys are scared. They're like, we're going to die. And Ammon knows that at this moment where there's emotions are high and we're kind of at this really life or death struggle, that he can step up and help. And I think sometimes when we have disasters, the church can stand up and say, hey, we're going to throw in you know, as many people as we can. We're going to help out. In my son's mission, they wear green shirts, right? We're going in. We're going to go in there. We're going to help. We're going to be identifiable, but that's not why we're doing it. We're doing it to help. But in so doing, there's hearts being won, right? And we know that. And uh, this is probably the guile that Ammon is, you know, later when, when Lamoni is converted, he says he was caught with guile which is a negative word, but I think the idea is this was the plan from the beginning. This was Ammon's plan from the beginning to win hearts by service. Now look at verse 30. He's already considering the other guys that are watching out for the flock, his brethren. And that goes back to the previous comment. I want you in my life. You are my brethren, and I'm going to help you. And by doing that, I know that If I win your heart, you'll believe my words. This is just such a profound commentary on all of the Lord's work, not just missionary work. When we win their hearts, they will believe our words. Just as an example, fast forward to chapter 22, the father of Lamoni's heart has been won. Ammon won the king's heart. This is Lamoni's dad. But Aaron is the one that shows up to teach the king. And the first thing he says is, hey, we'll be your servants. And the king says, I don't want servants. I want my questions answered. But notice what the king of all the Lamanites says. Aaron says, hey, do you believe there's a God? End of verse 7. If you say there is a God, behold, I will believe. How in the world do you make that? How does that come to pass? If you tell me there's a God, I'll believe it. That is a one heart. That is someone that says, I I love you. I trust you. You have won my heart. And if you tell me something, I'm going to believe it. And I think going back to Ammon and Lamoni, that's the heart and soul of missionary work, is to win hearts. Now, many years ago, Russia passed a law forbidding proselyting outside of the church. And I don't know if they had ulterior motives. I don't want to assume that, but it sure seems like they had ulterior motives that they were trying to rid the country of all these foreigners that were preaching religion. And so they passed a law that says you can only preach in your church. So that means we couldn't knock on doors. We couldn't have discussions in homes. We couldn't approach people in the street. The only way we could teach them about the church is if they came to our chapel. So how do we get people to come to our chapel? Well, that forced 
the missionaries in Russia to kind of into Ammon's approach, and they began to serve. In fact, we don't call them missionaries in Russia. We call them volunteers, and they help people. And those who have that attitude, like, I want you in my life, even until the day I die, and I'm going to serve you and bless you, that wins their hearts. And guess what happened? Missionary work didn't die in Russia. It flourished. They came to the chapels. And the reason they came to the chapels is because the missionaries had won their hearts. And that's missionary work, winning the hearts. So Ammon goes out, he chops off the arms, and his his desire here is to win the hearts of his brethren. So he does a courageous, heroic thing. And now notice what happens. Chapter 18, who runs back to the king? It's the servants. And what are they saying to the king? Hey, man, you've got an amazing servant here. So chapter 18, they run into the king and he says, well, who is this guy? Verse three, now tell me what the servants have come to know. What has your primary class come to know? What have the young women in your young women's group come to know? Well, the servants say, I don't know if he's the great spirit. What we do know is there's something about him. This man has power with him. There's something different about him. And the other thing they knew, I love this in verse three, the other thing that they knew for sure is that he was a friend of the king. So what would happen if every young woman in your class said, I don't know a whole lot about this church. I don't know. I, there's a, I have a lot of questions about its doctrine. But one thing I know is that my young woman's leader is special. She brings something different to the table, and she cares about me. That's all I know. Now, what would happen if that's all they knew? If your primary class knew that you cared about them, that's how missionary work is going to go forward. As soon as they have that kind of friend. And you remember, Lamoni says, where is this guy? Oh, he's, um, he's feeding your horses like you asked him to. And then Lamoni, verse 10, chapter 18, verse 10, was more astonished because of the faithfulness of Ammon, saying, surely there has never been any servant among all my servants that has been so faithful as this man. No one has cared about me like this man has. And I think, Mike, that leads to the golden question. You know, when we talk about missionary work, we often talk about the golden question. And we think the golden question is something that members of the church ask non-members. Something like, hey, can I tell you about my church? That you have to wait for the opportunity to ask the golden question. And the golden question is, hey, can I invite the missionaries over and can you hear? The golden question isn't what members ask non-members. It's what they ask us. Notice in verse 18, chapter 18, verse 18, I believe is the golden question. Lamoni brings up religion. I don't mean to suggest that that's always the case, because sometimes we need to bring up religion. But notice who brings up religion here. Ammon hasn't said anything about his religious beliefs. He's just loved and served and his heart pulled. He considers them his brethren. He wants them in his life. And he serves the king. And then comes the golden question. Verse, chapter 18, verse 18. Who are you? Who are you? His heart is ready for truth. Now he's a seeker. He's yearning. 
That is the golden question. When we live in such a way that the world says, who are these people? There's something about them that's different. And I've never seen a more faithful friend. I've never seen anyone care about me as deeply as this person does. Who are you? Now, notice the whole rest of chapter 18 and 19 is a very, very different story because now you have a man who's asking questions. I have questions, and I need you to answer them. I like Ammon's approach, too, where he says, okay, if I tell you, will you listen? Will you believe? Because sometimes people ask, and they're like, I'm just curious. It's like an intellectual curiosity. But in this instance, Lamoni's heart is in Ammon's hands. And that's where that guile verse comes in in yeah. verse 23, where it says he was caught with guile. And I don't think that means that Ammon was trying to be a trickster, but that he had a plan to begin with. And his plan was, I'm going in there and I'm going to win the heart of the king. And then when he's ready, I'm going to teach him. In other words, he he's not going in there blind, just randomly doing stuff, is he? Yep. Now, to prove that point, let's see it again. Let's skip Lamoni's conversion. Let's hold on for a second. Because how he teaches Lamoni and Lamoni's great conversion where it goes into the trance and Abish and the wife and all of that, let's see this whole story repeat itself in chapter 20. So this is where Ammon and Lamoni are on the way to Madoni to free Aaron from prison, and they run into Lamoni's dad. Now watch Ammon do it again. Watch him win a heart. And religion doesn't come up, even though, you know, when Nephites and Lamanites speak, they're kind of an implied religious tone here. But this is chapter 20, verse 9. Why didn't you come to the feast that I made for my sons and my people? And where are you going with this Nephite, which is a liar? And Lamoni, verse 11, reversed the whole, he, he told them the whole thing. And he, he seems to be telling the truth. He told them about his conversion. Then to verse 13, to his astonishment, which is a funny reaction because Joseph said the same thing. He was astonished at the way people responded. And converts are often astonished at this reaction. But his dad is angry. And his dad says, no, you will not deliver his brothers. You're going to deliver this man. You know, you're going to destroy this man. And then in verse 14, he commanded his son Lamoni to slay Ammon with the sword. And Lamoni says in 15, I won't, no way. I will not slay Ammon with the sword. He is speaking not only to his father, but he's speaking to the king of all the land. And he is disobeying an order. He's going to take a stand here. And this is gutsy and scary. I will not slay Ammon. I know that he's a holy prophet. So now the father's angry with Lamoni and drew his sword that he might smite his own son to the earth. That's a great dad. Well, then Ammon steps forward and says, no, you will not slay your son, even though it'd be better for him to die than for you because he's prepared to meet his maker. You are not. And so the king says in verse 19, I know that if I slay my son, I'll shed innocent blood because you're the evil one. And now he's going to come after Ammon. And Ammon, you just don't come after Ammon, right? Ammon withstood his blows and cut the king's arm so he couldn't use it. What is it about Ammon and arms? He's very disarming. That's good. I like that. (laughs) And so the king now can't use his arm. He begins to beg for his life. And I know this will be important later in verse 23. For his life, he offers half his kingdom. Please spare my life, and I'll offer you up to half my kingdom. Now, what was Ammon's request? He has the king of all the Lamanites at the end of his sword. He could have killed him. He could have asked for anything. 
And Ammon asked for two things. Number one, let my brethren get out of prison. And then he turned to Lamoni and said, and don't you harm your son. Don't you hurt your own son. Now verse 26, when he saw that Ammon had no desire to destroy him, and when he saw the great love that Ammon had for his son Lamoni, he was astonished exceedingly. Ammon just won his heart. How? By preaching powerful sermons? No. By loving his son. By caring about his son. It won the old man's heart. To the point where, notice what he says, end of verse 27, I shall greatly desire to see thee. So go get your brethren out of prison. Come back to see me. For I, the king, was greatly astonished at the words which he had spoken and also at the words which had been spoken by his son Lamoni. Therefore, he was desirous to learn them. There it is. Win the heart and then they will believe our words. But until you win the heart, they will not believe our words. There is missionary work. Now, we're going to contrast that in the next chapter. And I don't mean to speak negative of Aaron, but the text seems to be setting this up. This seems to be a foil. Ammon's approach is foiled with Aaron's approach. So Aaron, he drew a tough lot. It's true. But notice what his approach was. Aaron is going into where the Amalekites and the Amulonites have a stronghold. But notice verse 4, as contrasted by Ammon, who went in clearly with a desire to serve. Aaron went in in verse 4 and, quote, first began to preach. In the next sentence, he began to preach to them in their synagogues. Do you see the difference in the approach? Now, I will admit this is very common in the church. This is very common in missionary work. If you look at members of the church and how they approach spreading the gospel, quite often they go in preaching. Sometimes when you're new and you're, you're the new young women's leader and you go in preaching. Or you're a new bishop and you go in preaching. And this is Paul. Like and, he would go to the synagogue and because that's where the people got together. It was like the Facebook of the ancient world, right, where everybody gathered and he would say, okay, you guys believe in Old Testament? Let me show you that it's Jesus. And I think it's maybe missionary work too. Like if you're new to an area and you're a new missionary, let's just go knock everybody's door, talk to everybody. Or in the 1800s in England, right? We'd stand on a so, on yeah, the a street corner and, and we would just start preaching. But here's the interesting thing is, notice in verse 5, what frequently is the reaction to people who go in preaching? And I don't mean missionary work. How about the young women in your ward? If you're the new young women's leader and you go in preaching, what's the reaction? Right in the middle of verse 5, do you see the word that just jumps off the page? They began to contend with him. If your approach is to preach first, they're going to contend with you. Ammon's approach was to win the hearts. Aaron's approach was to preach. And they contend. Now, I, again, I, I don't know. I don't have all the facts. But look at verse 9. In that contentious environment, tell me what Aaron does. <laughs> he pulls out his scriptures. Now, this is what we often do on social media, right? We start preaching, and then people contend. So what do we do? We pull out the scriptures. He's Bible bashing. He's trying to prove his point. 
I have a good friend that says that a lot of the stuff on social media is, quote, not an ideal speech condition. <laughs> and I think how many times in our marriages or in families where we get in these contentious arguments, it's not an ideal speech condition. We have to set that up, don't we? Yeah. And if you're pulling out the scriptures in that environment, I know what you're doing. You're trying to prove You're trying to prove your point. Look, this scripture proves my point. Therefore, I'm right. It's almost a blood sport to some people, too. You see it out there. Yeah, it certainly can be. Now, look at verse 10. Look at the reaction. This is such a typical reaction when we are in a contentious environment, when we're trying to prove our religious beliefs. A, they get angry. B, They mock those religious beliefs. Rather than believing them, they're mocking them. And then the last one, verse 10, contrast Aaron and Ammon. Ammon won hearts, and therefore they began to believe the words. These people would not hear the words which Aaron spoke. I wonder if there's the the Lord is trying to simply say there is a connection between going in preaching. Now, as we're going to see in a minute, there is a time to preach. In Ammon's case with Lamoni, there was a time to preach, but the time to preach was after the heart was won, not beforehand. And if we try to preach with an unwon heart, it often leads to anger, mocking, and I would not hear. And then the very end of verse 11, they contended with many about the word. They just kept that contention going. I'm going to play devil's advocate really quick. Go ahead. So look in verse uh, 4. They're preaching to the Amalekites and the Amulonites. Now, we don't get a lot of information about the Amalekites. The information is these are apostate Nephites, but the Amulonites we know. And we suspect, there's an interesting thought from Royal Skousen's work on the Book of Mormon that perhaps the Amalekites are the Amlicites of Alma chapter 3 that apostatize and join the Lamanites, and that would then explain why they're so hardened. These are hardened guys. These are are ex-Nephites who have apostatized and come and join the Lamanites, and they are a harder group. Mormon makes the point, I think in one verse, I think it's going to be in the next podcast where he's like, only one of these guys comes over. He makes that really important announcement that he says all the preaching could not fix these two groups. And and he's going to then make the commentary at the end of of chapter 24. He's going to say, thus we can plainly discern that after a people have been once enlightened by the Spirit of God and have had great knowledge of things pertaining to righteousness and then have fallen away, they become more hardened and thus their state becomes worse than though they had never known these things. So it is true that Aaron falls among a harder group, uh, but just the way the text is I set love, up uh, yeah, I love sure set up. seems to suggest that maybe he would have had a better chance if he went in trying to win their hearts. Verse 16 also gives a little bit of the, the other side where it says, they went forth whithersoever they were led by the Spirit of the Lord. So I like what Bryce is saying, and I'm totally with it. I also like to say, yeah, these guys just drew the short straw. Yeah. But yet I think Mormon is setting this up as a foil. I think Mormon's trying to say, let me use the Book of Mormon to teach you how to do this. And this isn't just missionary work. Like This is relationships. I remember reading that verse being so astonished when Lamoni tells his dad, hey, I've joined Team Nephi. And he's so astonished that his dad freaks out. And I'm like, well, what did you expect? And I thought, these difficult conversations... 
Bryce and I haven't had to really have those. Bryce and I came from a place where our moms were members of the church, and Bryce, in your case, both your mom and dad were members of the church. Correct. My both, all four of my grandparents and all of my great grandparents. Yeah, you're like your roots are deep. Okay, but what about the church? I, you know, I don't know the numbers, but I bet over half the church is first generation or second generation Latter Day Saint. You have to have these conversations, don't you? You meet these missionaries, and you take the discussions, and the Spirit comes upon you. And how do you broach that? You can't not ever tell your parents that you've joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. At some point, you have to have that conversation. And those conversations are so difficult. And it reminded me of so many stories of church history, especially some of the women. They would join the church, and their family would just ostracize them and say, we're cutting you off. And they would come here to America with nothing. What great faith they had. Okay, but there's like two sides to this, aren't there? There's those that that join, and they have to go through these difficult conversations. But then what about the other side? What about if you're a member of the church and your son or daughter comes to you and says, my beliefs are not the same as yours? Do we act like Lamoni's dad? Because when he says, I'm going to... Not only Lamoni's dad, but in next week's podcast, we'll talk about a whole group of people who are so angry that they've joined the church, they're going to kill them. I I liken that into destroying the relationship. Yeah, are we like those? I'm going to destroy the relationship because you've taken a path that I don't like. Right. So I think that these chapters have relevance and application. Yeah, and I I really think that Mormon is telling this story to hold this up to say... Hey, look, you look at that from both sides. We all need to understand what the convert goes through that comes into this church, and they have to deal with the left behinds, and they have to deal with a new culture. And that's what next week's podcast is really going to address, is dealing with the left behinds and then preparing to go join a culture that's been foreign to you for so many years. And how do you find yourself assimilating into that new culture? But Mormon seems to be bringing this up to say, but let's not be the people who destroy the relationship simply because someone chose a path that you don't agree with. If winning hearts, if love, if keeping people in our lives for, for life is the goal here, then, then there ought to be a little bit more understanding. And there ought to be a reaching out to a child who is choosing a path that we don't necessarily agree with. But, you know, again, even in that situation, you can take the Ammon approach or you can take the Aaron approach. How do some parents respond to children who want to take a wayward path? Well, do they take an Ammon approach? Do they seek the relationship and this person and service? Or do they take an Aaron approach? Do they pull out the scriptures and tell that child all the things that they're doing wrong? I think the Book of Mormon is really trying to portray this as a foil to say, in everything we do, you can take the Ammon approach or you can take the Aaron approach. And by the way, I like how you pointed out that Aaron learned. So let's do that. Let's go to to chapter 22 after Aaron is taken out of prison. So he learns. He goes in preaching to Jerusalem. He goes in preaching to Antioch. He goes in preaching to Madonai. And then in chapter 22, he's sent by Ammon to Lamoni's father, the king over all the land. And the, notice what he does in verse 3. O king, if thou wilt spare our lives, we will be thy servants. I wonder where he learned that approach. He comes into the king of all the land, and he doesn't preach. He walks in there and says, we'll be your servants. And the king says, I don't want servants. I want preachers. His heart was one. He doesn't need his heart to be one. 
He needs someone to answer his questions. And so Aaron learned, and he he adapted, and there's got to be a connection. Mormons must be saying something if after he gets out of prison, he tries a completely different approach. He doesn't go in preaching to the king. He goes in serving. Aaron learns, but so does Lamoni, and so does Lamoni's dad. In other words, like if you're the parent and you have a son or daughter who says, I'm going this path, the Aaron approach you can go that way and you can kind of stand on that hill and say, and fold your arms and say, I'm justified. And look, I've used the scriptures, but if you've burned the relationship, what have you really done? And then the flip side is also true. Like there's these breadcrumbs in the book of Mormon that says, man, these Lamanites are tough. They're ferocious. They're hard hearted. A bunch of times they're called murderers. And yet, even though they're in this really difficult situation, Ammon's like, giddy up, I'm going in, I'm, I'm diving in. And this text shows that even the Lamonis and the Lamonis father, we don't have his name, that they learn. And so I like to look at this as to say, this is also a story from both sides of the coin, how as human beings, we really mess up a lot. And the Lord's patient with us. Like the Lord's not done with Lamoni, even Lamoni. Lamoni is in the practice of killing his own servants. Like he's clearly done. It says that this is a practice among them. And so he's not a nice guy. I mean, if you had somebody on the news that was in the, he was in the practice of taking his servants and killing them, we would say, this guy's a bad guy, right, Bryce? Yeah. And not only that, but when Lamoni was granted freedom to govern his people, chapter 21, verse 21 It points out that Lamoni's people, after they were granted autonomy, were, quote, free from the oppressions of the king, his father. So clearly, the king of all the land, Lamoni's dad, had not been a great man. He had been a mean king, and that they were rejoicing that they were free from the, quote, oppressions of the king, Lamoni's own father. And so I think there's a whole side to this, you know, these hard men are softening and that they are turning to God. And I love the, how that is taught in chapter 22, where what bothered the king is this idea about the Holy Ghost and salvation and judgment day. And if you repent, you'll be saved. If not, you'll be cast off. And then Aaron teaches him about God. He teaches him the creation, the fall, and the atonement. And he teaches him the doctrine of the atonement. And then comes the heartfelt plea of someone who has lived a not-so-righteous life wanting to change. So chapter 22, verse 15, after Aaron taught Jesus, the king said, what shall I do that I may have this eternal life of which thou hast spoken? Yea, what shall I do that I may be born of God, having this wicked spirit rooted out of my breast? So what's he admitting, Mike? Having this wicked spirit rooted out of my breast, I've got to get rid of this evil man that I've been and receive his spirit, that I may be filled with joy, that I may not be cast off at the last day. Now, do you remember how he offered half his kingdom when his life was being threatened? And now for salvation's sake, he says, I will give up all that I possess. Yea, I will forsake my whole kingdom, that I may receive this great joy. That reminds me of Omni 126, where we offer our whole souls. And I love the C.S. Lewis quote where the C.S. Lewis says, the Lord wants you in for the whole treatment. He doesn't want some. He doesn't want half. He doesn't want some of your time. He wants all of you. And so I think the Book of Mormon is trying to show this idea, right? This isn't half my kingdom. This is when he finally sees who Jesus is, when he finally sees and the Spirit has conv- convinced him 
of who he is, he's like, I'm putting all the chips in. I'm all in. And I think that's why sometimes people outside of the church culture see us as kind of different because once you're converted and you're all in, there's not a lot of middle ground. And Jesus is doing this in the New Testament where he's like, he's throwing down such outrageous statements. I mean, in the Bread of Life sermon, he's like, if you don't eat this bread, you have no life in you. There's no middle ground. And in John six sixty six, right, one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture where it says many disciples left him. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, are you going to leave? And, and Peter's like, where else am I going to go? You're it, Jesus. There is no other words of life. You are the source. I'm all in. And once Lamoni's dad realizes this, this is John six sixty seven, where he's like, I'm all in. I will give up everything. And at that point, I think Aaron knows, okay, now you're ready to be taught. Now you're ready to make all the commitments to come to Jesus. And I love that the king takes it one step further. So in chapter 15, he says, I will give up all that I possess. Yea, I will forsake my kingdom that I may have this great joy. Now he's going to go one more step after Aaron speaks. So Aaron says, if you desire this thing, if you will bow down before God, now, that was hard for a king to do, right? right they don't this bow. is the king of all the Lamanites. They don't bow to anybody. And he says, if you will bow down before God, and if thou will repent of thy sins and will bow down before God, notice he says it twice, and call on his name in faith, believe that thou shalt receive, you will receive the hope that you desire. So now the king of all the Lamanites bows down. After Aaron had said these words, the king did bow down before the Lord on his knees and did prostrate himself upon the earth and cried mildly, saying, Oh God. Now watch, the king's going to take it one more step. Not only is he going to give up all of his kingdom, or at least willing to give up all of his kingdom, watch this next step. Aaron hath told me that there is a God, and if there is a God, and if thou art God, wilt thou make thyself known unto me, and I will give away all my sins to know thee. That's a convert. That's someone whose heart is changed. Not only is he willing to give up his whole kingdom to have the joy of the gospel, but he understands that I must give up my sins. I'm willing to give away all my sins to know God. That man is ready to be taught. And the funny thing is I love in, in both of these, in Aaron teaching the king and in Ammon teaching Lamoni, once the heart has been won, once their heart is ready, now they teach them. So going back to our church callings, winning the heart is step one. Once the heart is won, now you need to teach truth. Now you need to answer questions because Lamoni and, and Lamoni's dad all have some very hard questions. I need to know the truth. These things have been bothering me. Can you answer my questions? So part of this whole process moving forward is win their hearts and then answer their questions. And I love how Ammon illustrates that with Lamoni. Ammon says to Lamoni, I'm back in chapter 18, do you believe in God? Verse 24, do you believe there's a God? And Lamoni says, I don't know what you mean by that. Okay, do you believe in a great spirit? Yes, yes, I do. So do I. The great spirit is God, and he created all things. Now, do you notice what he just did? That's accommodation right and there. And we almost go the opposite direction. We almost lead with the differences. We almost go out there saying, 
you idiots believe this, and here's the truth. Ammon goes in there and says, hey, let's start with common ground. What do you believe and I believe? We both believe in God. Okay, let's move forward. Do you believe in prophets? Do you believe that prophets spoke anciently? Do you believe that God speaks through prophets? If you do, I do too. I believe that in prophets. Now we can talk about whether or not there's a prophet today. But we've established a common belief, and I love that approach, which is very different than the one we often take, and that is we lead with the differences rather than lead with the commonalities. And so he starts with that, and then he takes him. The other thing I want to point out is both of them lead both of these people to the plan of salvation, to creation, fall, and atonement. It is the Savior that converts. In fact, if you go forward a a couple chapters, now we'll do this next week, but if you go forward to chapter 23, I'm going to read verse 6, as sure as the Lord liveth, so sure as many as believed, or as many as were brought to the knowledge of the truth through the preaching of Ammon and his brethren, according to the spirit of revelation and prophecy and the power of them working miracles in their lives, yea, as the Lord liveth, as many of the Lamanites as believed in their preaching and were converted unto the Lord, never did fall away. You've got to take them to the Savior. Both Ammon, Ammon does it with Lamoni, Aaron does it with his dad. They say, I have won their heart. But the real person who needs to win our hearts is the Savior. You've got to, you've got to take them to Jesus. There probably were some people that were culturally brought into the kingdom of God, you know, because it says later, especially when Lamoni's dad joins, his whole household joins, and how much of that was pressure. So I think Mormon's drawing that line, and he's saying, no, they got to be converted to the Lord. I think that's the issue. Take them to Jesus. Yeah. So when you teach them, teach them the greatness of the Savior. Teach them what the role the Savior will play in their life. And that's why I think we just have a beautiful commentary. When Aaron is teaching Lamoni's dad, about the plan. Let me read what he says. Aaron did, I'm in chapter 22, verse 13. Aaron did expand unto him the scriptures from the creation, laying the fall of man before him in their carnal state, and also the plan of redemption, which was prepared from the foundation of the world through Christ for all whosoever would believe on his name. That must have taken on new meaning as you spoke to a Lamanite king. And since man had fallen, he could not merit anything of himself. But the sufferings and death of Christ atone for their sins through faith and repentance, and he breaks the bands of death. It's Jesus that Ammon taught. It's Jesus that Aaron taught. It's the gospel leading to the Savior that causes the conversion, and we don't fall away. So I just, I think that's important to point out that while Ammon and Aaron may have temporarily won their hearts, it was the Savior who won Lamoni's heart. I love when he comes out of his trance in chapter 19. You just sense this absolute love for the Redeemer. He just comes out and says, I have seen my Redeemer. I love that he calls him my Redeemer. And once the Redeemer wins your heart, now you are on that path of salvation. I have seen my Redeemer, and he shall come forth and be born of a woman, and he shall redeem all mankind who believe on his name. You've got to see Jesus in this story. 
You've got to know that he was the one that was the rock on which these Lamanites are going to build if they're going to survive all that's going to come in the rest of their lives. So win hearts, teach them, lead them to Jesus, let Jesus win their hearts, and then they'll be strong. That's good. I do want to talk about the trance really quick because there's two of them. I remember reading this going, this is so different. I think we're so removed culturally from this idea. I don't know if it's like this in other places. I didn't serve my mission in a foreign country, so I don't know if this happens very often. But just know this kind of thing is not so outside the realm of possibility or culture. Specifically, even in Joseph Smith's day. In Joseph Smith's day, there was this notion that you could fall into a trance if you're born of God. Uh, This was also common, at least in my opinion, common in the Bible. I mean, you've got the story in Numbers 24 where Balaam falls into a trance and has his eyes open that he can see the vision of the Almighty. And I'm, re- I'm going to read another account of another individual. This is coming out of 1 Samuel 19, but I'm not going to read the, the King James. I'm going to read what's called the New English Bible. This is about uh, King Saul. So King Saul, he's on this search for David, and having been told that David was at Ramah, Saul sent a very uh, large party of men to seize him. And when they saw the company of prophets in rapture with Samuel standing at their head, the Spirit of God came upon them, and they fell into prophetic rapture. When this was reported to Saul, he sent another party. These also fell into a rapture, and when he sent more men a third time, they did the same thing. Saul himself then went to Ramah and came to the great cistern. He asked where Samuel and David were and was told that they were at Ramah. On his way there, the Spirit of God came upon him too, and he went on in a rapture as he went. And it goes on. And that's 1 Samuel 19, 20 through 24. So we see this in the Old Testament. Ezekiel's going to do it in Ezekiel chapter 8. We also see it in the New Testament, where we read that Peter falls into a trance. That's Acts chapter 10. And so we'll post more of this. There's a lot more that we could we, we could mention. But just know this cu- comes up twice. This comes up with Lamoni, and then it comes up with Lamoni's father. And I remember being a young man, I had never seen anybody fall into a trance. I'd never seen any of this stuff before, and I just thought, this is just so foreign. And so I just wanted to just share that to, to help us all realize culturally uh, it's different for maybe many of us in the West, but not so different for those people back then and not necessarily so much for Joseph Smith's day. Is this the main point? No. I think Bryce is hitting the main point. The main point is this differences between Ammon and Aaron's approach and then having them being converted to the Lord. Uh, that, I, that's the main point. And I do love the description of the trance, and I can totally understand why it would be overwhelming. So in chapter 19, verse 6, he knew that the dark veil of unbelief was being cast away from his mind, and the light which did light up his mind, which was the light of the glory of God, which was marvelous light of his goodness. Yea, this light had infused such joy into his soul, the cloud of darkness having been dispelled, and that the light of everlasting light was lit up in his soul. Yea, he knew that this had overcome his natural frame." And he was carried away in God. That's just such a beautiful description. And it is such a stark contrast to guilt and anguish. When you first come to God, you are overwhelmed with feelings of shame and guilt, and I don't want to see him. Do you remember Alma's description to his son in Alma chapter 36? He says, I would rather cease to exist than face God in that horror. And then comes the light. 
and then you begin to see the love of God, and it can be overwhelming. Um, my natural reaction, our natural reaction here in the United States is often tears. We may not fall into a trance, but we often become so overwhelmed, we weep, and sometimes significantly. But I love that, that description, that a major change was going on, yeah. and so he was just overwhelmed. Yeah. In, in the 19th chapter with Lamoni's trance, there's this interesting text that talks about this young lady named Abish. I find it interesting that we don't know the na- name of Lamoni's father. We don't know the name of Lamoni's wife, but Mormon makes the point to tell us that the name of this, what he says, Lamanitish woman, uh, her name was Abish. This is verse 16. She having been converted into the Lord for many years on account of a remarkable vision of her father. Now, we don't know what that means. Does it mean she had a vision of her father after he died? Does it mean that her father had a vision maybe of the Savior? We just don't know. But there's there's a lot of levels and layers to Alma 19, and a careful reading of the text will show us that there's a lot going on here. So I'm going to lay out a couple thoughts. So I want to start with Verse 17, Ammon is prostrate, so Lamoni is in a trance. Um, Ammon is prostrate upon the earth. And then we get this very interesting verse. So this is Alma 19, verse 21. They were rebuked by those men who had stood at the waters of Sebus. So here's what's going on. The, The people are murmuring. There's this Nephite in the land. The king's passed out. And what do we do? And so Abish stands up in verse 16 And in verse 17, it says, thus having been converted to the Lord, never having made it known. Therefore, when she saw that the servants of Lamoni had fallen to the earth and also her mistress, the queen and the king and Ammon was prostrate, she knew that it was the power of God. So what does she do? The end of verse 17, she lets people know, hey, the king has passed out. So the king's passed out, Ammon's passed out, the the queen's out. And back to verse 21. These guys who were the bad guys at the waters of Sebus are right there in the king's throne room or in his chamber. They're close. You have this huge urban society, right? These Lamanites have cities, at least in this context. And the enemies at the waters of Sebus that are scattering the king's flocks are right there. And I remember the first time reading this going, what is going on here, right? If my enemies are, that are out to scatter my flocks, what, what are they doing this close to my chamber? So back to verse 21, they were angry with Ammon because of the number which he had slain of their brethren at the waters of Sebus while defending the flocks of the king. And one of them whose brother had been slain with the sword of Ammon, being exceedingly angry with Ammon, drew his sword and went forth that he might fall upon Ammon and slay him. And he lifted up the sword to smite him. Well, when that happened, behold, he fell dead. Okay, so a couple of thoughts. I don't have the answers, but I'll never forget reading long time ago. This book called The Prophetic Book of Mormon by Hugh Nibley. And I'll post this in the show notes because it's a lot of stuff. But essentially, he says, I love this line Hugh Nibley says. He says, what insanity is this? What insanity is this that the king kills his own servants for losing a contest that had been acted out before? What do we mean by that? Well, over and over again in the narrative, it says that this was a practice of plunder among them. That's Alma 18, verse 7. That this was something that happened over and over again. It says that they delighted in the destruction of their brethren, and for this cause they stood to scatter the flocks of the king, Alma 17, 35. There's this constant practice, it says. And then after Ammon cuts off their arms and he goes and talks to Lamoni, this is before the trance, Lamoni says, why did you do this 
to my brethren. That's Alma 18, verse 20. Now, if I'm the king and these people are like, let's say they're they're taking away, let's say I have a bunch of uh, a used car lot and <laughs> these people are stealing my cars off my car lot. I'm not going to call the thieves my brethren. And so what's going on? Now, like I said, I don't know. But Hugh Nibley, he supposes this. He says, it should be clear that we're dealing with some sort of game, he says, a regular practice, following certain rules. This becomes apparent when the very men who stood at the waters of Cebus and scattered the flocks are mingling freely and openly with the crowd of people gathered at the palace at the report of the strange things going on there, Hugh Nibley says. And I'm like, that does kind of make sense. He says, isn't it odd, and isn't it odd that the same wicked Lamanites are walking around right in front of the king's palace where everybody recognizes them and no one does anything about it? And so uh, I see this as a layered text. I see that certainly as a possibility that maybe Hunibli's right. Now, another uh, really good uh, commentator on this is a man by the name of Brant Gardner. And in 2014 at a conference, he lays out, he, he calls this the historicity of the text meaning that this text has layers that Joseph Smith couldn't have known necessarily. He says, he calls it the case for the historicity discerning the Book of Mormon's production culture. His assumption is this. He says, there's probably something going on here with politics. There's a rival family that's maybe vying for control. And these are his points that he gives out. He says, Number one, Ammon, a traditional enemy, volunteers to be a servant, and instead of killing or jailing him, the king offers him one of his daughters. That's kind of interesting. The second thing, the Lamanite king has an ongoing problem with his flocks, and it never occurs to the king to send armed guards to protect them. Ammon shows up with a sword, and this is like this novel idea. Number three, Mormon indicates the thieves who are after the flocks, but they pick a particularly difficult target. The text specifically mentions that the flocks scattered insomuch that they fled many ways. So maybe they're not after the flocks. Maybe they're just after to scatter them is his point. He's trying to show that the king doesn't have power necessarily or that the king is impotent. Ammon suggests that he and the servants round up the flocks. It does not appear that this has ever occurred to anyone before. That they were successful confirms that the so-called thieves did not get anything for their effort. We must assume that other servants could have gathered the flocks. However, they prefer to lose their lives rather than track down the errant animals. What's going on here? Ammon seems to be the only one to whom it occurred to fight back. Just as the king never supplies armed guards, there is no record of any other servant resisting. None of Ammon's companion servants join in the fight, says in the text. In the spiritual aftermath, the king and queen are lying as though dead. When the servant Abish gathers people to see the miracle, several of those who come are relatives of those who scatter the flocks, including the brother of the guy who was killed. The text doesn't tell us why the king lives among the thieves. And then Brant Gardner says, Everything that we ought to know to fill in these blanks of nonsense is missing. But then he says, Mesoamerican political tensions supply the missing context. And then he goes on and he explains this. And he says, listen, during this time period, there were rival factions and there was dynamic tension between them. And so one of the things that these rival families would do that were vying for power is they would scatter the flocks of the king to show that he was impotent. Now, the king can't go kill these guys because that would cause civil war. But the king also can't stand there and do nothing because then he would be impotent. So what does the king do? He kills the servants that are supposedly guarding the flocks. That way he saves face. He avoids civil war. 
And if you think about it, if you're from the rival faction, the rival family, now you've just got more people loyal to the king dead because he killed those servants. And so you do it again and you wash, rinse, and repeat and you just keep doing this. Ammon, who's not subject to these crazy rules, he's thrown in this mix and Ammon's like, I know, I'll cut off their arms. So Ammon steps in and he does this and Brant Gardner says, this is probably what's going on. Um, I certainly don't know, but... One of the things we see here is there's layers here, and I'm just opening up our minds to interpreting these and looking at this story from another uh, point of view. Anyway, so that's another way to look at it regarding the nuances of this fight. But now I want to talk briefly about Abish. She stands up. We know her name, and the question is why? Why is her name in here? And, you know, we don't have Lamoni's wife's name. We don't have the name of Lamoni's father. And there's a really good document. It's 18 pages. It's by a guy by the name of Matt Bowen. And it's in a book called Name is Keyword. And his point is that there's a light word. A light word is a theme word. And one of the theme words that's woven throughout Alma is this idea of Jesus being a man, but also being a father and also being God. And Abish, literally, it's two words mashed together. It's Ab and Ish. Ab is father and Ish is man. And so it could literally mean my father is a man, Abish. And so how is she converted to Jesus? By her father's vision. In this, we can kind of pull out some ideas that Ammon is teaching that Jesus is our father, but he's also a man. We can also understand this in the context of the Lamanite culture, how they keep referring to great spirit. And Abish is a subtle reminder that, yeah, he's a spirit, but he's also your father. And he's also a man. And then this also ties us back to Alma 7 in Isaiah 53, that he's the Messiah, but he's God, but he's a man, but he's also the suffering servant. And so this is a light word, meaning a theme word. And so if you go through Alma 18 and 19, and you just highlight words like man and great spirit and great power, you can see Abish and her name just kind of rise up. And it's almost as if Mormon is saying, I'm going to put her name in here because her name is referring back to those ideas, father, man, good stuff going on here in, in these chapters, Bryce. Anything you want to add here? No, just a reminder to everyone, in whatever you do, not only religiously, but in our lives, at the grocery store, in our jobs, you can take an Ammon approach or you can take an Aaron approach. And I think the foil here in these chapters is trying to make it very clear that success comes when we see individuals, we care about the relationship, we win hearts. When we win hearts, they believe our words. With that, we thank you for listening. We're really excited to talk next week about Alma 23 through 29, where we continue some of this stuff. And we're going to talk about what it's like to join the church and dealing with a new culture and left behinds. And then, oh, do I love Alma 29. We'll see you next week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.